Uh, it's good to be here and to look out on you and to be here with you as we look at God's Word together. If we haven't met yet, my name is Charles Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'll be after the service. I'll be milling around, so please come up and say hi. I'd love to make your acquaintance. Uh, if you're new with us, we're in, we're in the middle of a series where we uh, take some time and look at different questions Jesus asked. And it's, sometimes he asks a question in his teaching. Sometimes, sometimes he asks a question in, when he's about to perform a miracle. But almost always, when you look at his questions, you get the sense that Jesus is uh, either challenging us, he's exposing something in us, sometimes he's reasoning Uh, with us, but he is actually straining at something he wants for us. It's a depth of concern that he has for us that's revealed whenever he asks us a question. But often, like in the stories that we're about to look at this morning, often those questions come in the context of somebody that wants something from Jesus. And that resonates, doesn't it? That Jesus wants something for us, and we often want something from him. This morning, he is, we're going to look at two texts. Mark does this all the time. He pairs up stories, running one. Sometimes he enfolds them into each other, but often he's got two stories that run back to back. And this time, we're looking at two stories where Jesus asks the exact same question using the exact same words. What do you want me to do for you? That's the question we're looking at this morning. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 52. Hear the word of the Lord. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to them, they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David! Have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. 
And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, our master, our king, the one who champions our hearts and wins us to yourself, the one who laid down his own life that we might belong to you, I pray that you would show us yourself, that we would get a sense of what it looked like to be among the disciples as you taught them about you and about the life they were, that you're calling them to, uh, as you heal blind men on the side of the road, as you contend with a crowd, I pray, would you show us these things? that our love for you might be deepened, our willingness to trust you might be widened. Would you be with us in these things? And help, help me to love these friends well uh, and to speak in, in complete fidelity to your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you sat down and read the book of Mark, it occurs to me we've been looking at Mark a lot over these last uh, couple months. But if you sat down and read it from start to finish... It would take the average reader probably a little less than two hours. You could watch an average Martin Scorsese flick twice in the amount of time that it takes to read the book of Mark. If you're like me and a slow reader, set aside, you know, a good full two hours. And I would encourage you to do that. Um, And if you did, what you'd find is just a lot of activity. There's a lot going on. Jesus is always on on the move somewhere when you're looking at these stories of his life, and uh, one person called it the go gospel of Mark because he's always on the move. He's always surrounded by a crowd of people. People are always asking him for things. Uh, He's always contending with suspicion or opposition in some way. And the the reason it is so hyperactive uh, in that way is because John Mark was writing the the gospel of Mark uh, based on the eyewitness testimony of the disciple Peter to encourage the church in Rome. And what he wanted to do was to see these uh, young Christians who were suffering uh, immensely, uh, immense pressure because of their faith. They wanted him, he wanted them to see Jesus as the suffering servant savior, one who speaks and acts and delivers in the midst of crisis. What he wanted them to be able to see was, uh, was uh, Jesus serving people in ways that people were unable to serve themselves. That's what he was trying to get across. Jesus is not only able, but willing to serve people in ways they were unable to serve themselves. And that's the thing about Jesus. That our gratefulness for him is often measured by how badly we feel our need of him. And so let me just ask you the question. Are there places in your life where you feel deeply your need of Jesus? Uh, Like you, uh, I have several people in my life or not in my life that I look to for wisdom and counsel as an example for me about just various places in life, not in ministry and in life, pastors that I talk to about pastoring and parents that I talk to about parenting, that kind of thing. Um, 
And I was reading a biography of one of my favorite, very favorite pastors who has since passed away, but there was a story in there about how he wrote a letter to a much younger pastor who was just getting into the ministry, where he said, people would be, people would be shocked to learn just how little of the time I know what I'm doing. And I remember reading that thinking, okay, so I'm not the only one, I'm not the only one. But life is often uh, compelling us into spaces where it's asking something from us that we may or may not have. And it's interesting here, I think, to look at, to look at these two stories where twice Jesus is approached with a request for something that they can't provide for themselves and how Jesus responds to that. Notice that Jesus doesn't refute desire the desire itself, or oppose it directly. But what does he do? He is drawing it out that he might contend with it, both in his request to be seen and in a request or an expressed desire to see. What I want to do this morning is take on these two stories in reverse order. I want to first talk about the desire to see, and then I want to talk about this desire to be seen. And both times I'm going to ask three questions within each point, if you're taking notes. First, who's asking the question? What are they asking for? And what's the response they get? Okay? Who's asking? What are they asking for? What's the response they get? Okay, first you have a desire to be seen. This is the second story, which begins in verse 46. First, who is asking? There are a couple details here that are really interesting. That, uh, that Mark gives us about this blind Bartimaeus. And the first thing I want to point out is that this is a relatively short story, um, and, uh, and yet this blind beggar on the side of the road that Jesus helped is named. And not only is he named, but they give us his family name. He's Bartimaeus, Bar son of Timaeus. And, 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 uh, and that's fairly rare in the book of Mark, He doesn't name everybody that Jesus meets or that Jesus helps on the way. And when Mark, Luke does this a lot too, but whenever Mark includes little details like that in his story, it's as if to say, if you're having a hard time believing that this actually happened, you can go there. Uh, This is his name. And this is his family name. And this this is where you will find him. And you can ask for yourself. That's the first detail to point out. The second detail, the other thing to note about Bartimaeus is that for as significant as he is in Mark's book, he's really completely insignificant in the eyes of the crowd. Uh, He cries out to Jesus in verse 48, and the crowd does what? They, They rebuke him, and they actually tell him to be silent. And when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, uh, eventually this whole crowd is going to turn on him, right? They're going to turn against him. But right now, they think that Jesus is far too important and significant to be troubled by the cries of a blind beggar on the side of the road. And so what are they doing? They're acting like gatekeepers to Jesus. It reminds me of when the children wanted to to come to Jesus and, uh, and the disciples are acting like gatekeepers to him, right? I mean, it's very similar to that. And, uh, and, and we could do, Mark is clearly drawing attention to this, uh, to like the madness of crowds and the, you know, the fickle nature of a crowd's opinion. And we could do a whole discourse on that. But the point is, is that Jesus is undeterred. He's unfazed by the opinion of the crowd. And he hears this cry, and he reaches out, and he says, call him. 
And then what does the crowd do? They do a 180 again. They say, take heart. He's calling you, right? And so he calls them to him and he asks his question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, listen, does that sound strange? Like, wouldn't it be obvious what this person would want from Jesus? Why is Jesus even asking the question? Well, he is providing a forum for Bartimaeus to be able to to announce his desire in front of Jesus and in front of everybody gathered. He's, He's simply drawing out his desire in order that he might be able to contend with it. And uh, one scholar makes the point that when he says this, he said, let me recover my sight. He, he isn't just asking for his eyesight back. He's asking for his life back. If, if you notice, um, he said, let me recover my sight. It's, it's like, it, it's probable that this means that he could see it one time and that he lost it somewhere along the way for some reason. And when he's asking for his sight back, he's asking to be able to work again and to be able to live again and interact with people again and not be begging on the side of the road again. And and we don't know how long that this was the state of his life, but it takes real courage to make this request of Jesus and to, to ask for a life that he might lean in and live again. And that's what he's asking for. It takes courage to ask this. But for Jesus, he certainly sees courage. But what does he call what he sees here. He calls it something more. He calls it faith. He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, what makes what Bartimaeus did an expression of faith? Look back at the story and try to see it. Uh, Can you see this scene? You got crowds passing by. I've never met a crowd that wasn't super noisy all the time. People talking with each other, shouting across the way and all that. And and Bartimaeus, with some measure of audacity, is trying to shout over the crowd, Jesus, son of David. Everybody's trying to get Jesus's attention. And he's trying to shout over all of these people, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. And when they tell him to be quiet, he only shouts even louder that he might get his attention. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you see this expression of faith in the very words that Bartimaeus is using. Because one, he calls him a son of David. Now, that, that is a, to a Jew, that is a tremendously big deal. Because what that, there was this promise in the scriptures that he probably grew up learning that there is someone who would come in the line of King David that God would send as the Messiah, Redeemer, Rescuer of his people. And Bartimaeus is saying out loud, this is that guy. And what's he asking for? He's asking for mercy. He's saying Jesus is the son of David and he is the arbiter of God's divine mercy to his people. And listen, that's what faith is. If you're you're wondering, it can be easy to kind of leave faith in the abstract. And and If you're wondering, it, it is this announcement of a need. It is a confession of a need for mercy. And it's saying, in Jesus I find mercy. That's what Jesus is calling faith. There's a story from the early 80s 
I'm not an ophthalmologist. I don't know how big of a deal this is now, but this was like 42 years ago. So I, I, maybe it was, but then it was groundbreaking, okay? There was this woman in 19, uh, the, the story ran in 1982 in the LA Times. The surgery happened in 1981, but there was this woman named Anna May Pinnica, and she was born blind. Um, she had this rare congenital uh, cataracts in both eyes and had never, she'd never seen the green of spring or the blue of a summer sky. She'd never see these things, but she was known for her cheerful spirit. Nonetheless, she met her husband in Braille class. Uh, he lost his sight uh, shortly after they got married to each other. And uh, in uh, this miracle surgery, when she was 62, 62 years old, 62 years, she had lived blind and there was this miracle groundbreaking surgery where a surgeon could go in and actually remove the cataracts from her eyes. And, uh, and she said that everything, like seeing for the first time, everything was bigger and brighter than she imagined it could be. And there was just wonder when she looked at the Pacific sunset. She called it like a kaleidoscope. But the most wonderful thing was being able to gaze on faces of people that she knew but never got to see. She had learned these faces from touching them. You know, she felt their faces. But now she could look at them with her own two eyes. And with Bartimaeus, what he received was something wonderful, miraculous like that. But listen, it happened in an instant. It says immediately his eyesight returned to him. There was no surgery. There were no bandages. There was no, like, pain or recovery time. He couldn't see when Jesus started talking, and he was seeing fully by the time Jesus finished talking. There's a story in Matthew 11 where John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends his disciples to go meet with Jesus and ask him the question, are you the one? Are you the one that's been promised to us? Are you, the, are you the Messiah who has come to rescue God's people? And I love Jesus' response. What does he say? He quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says, Tell John what you see and what you hear here. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. Good news is preached to the poor. And the dead are raised up. And it's like he's saying, you tell me. Look, look around at what you see happening and listen to what you see happening. What are your eyes and your ears telling you? Listen, this story is about the faith of Bartimaeus and it's offering Bartimaeus to us as kind of a role model for us in understanding both our need of mercy and the mercy we find in Jesus. But it is also this testimony to Jesus's ministry and saying he is actually the Messiah who has come. That in Jesus, he, uh, that, it, that he is the Messiah who dignifies the broken and heals the blind. That he preaches good news to the poor and offers his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. It only makes sense then that, that he then, that Bartimaeus then committed, like gave his life to following Jesus for the rest of his days. There are early church historians 
that go on to say he followed Jesus all the way into Jerusalem. Like he was with Jesus on the triumphal entry and then he stayed in Jerusalem and became a steady presence after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And so the question, the question for us, I think, that this begs as followers of Jesus is do we understand our lives the same way? Like, do we understand our lives as given over to Jesus, following him wherever he takes us? Is that the way, like, with grateful hearts, grateful for the mercy that we've received, do we understand our lives as fundamentally disciples who follow Jesus? Are our hearts filled with gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us? Listen, nothing should melt our hearts faster than to be able to assess the magnitude of all that Jesus has done for us. To be able to confess with full hearts that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. And yet it's easy to forget, isn't it? A case in point is this other story that we look at. And you got these disciples that come to him with this desire to be seen. But before we ask about, before we look at what they're asking for, let's talk about who these two are for a minute, okay? This is James and John, sons of Zebedee. That means they're brothers, okay? They grew up together. They probably fight a lot and love each other deeply, is my bet, okay? And... Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and they're with Jesus from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry all the way to the end. I mean, they've been with him since the very beginning, and we're probably days away from when Jesus actually walks into Jerusalem. So they've been bombing around with him for, for quite a while now. And whenever Jesus only brings a few of his disciples with him into a space, James and John are almost always a part of those few. So it's usually James and John and Peter along with Jesus. So they were with Jesus in Mark chapter 5 when, uh, when Jesus raised the dead girl to life. Some of you remember we looked at that story a few weeks ago. And earlier in this very same chapter, in Mark chapter 10, they were with Jesus. They were part of the three with Jesus on top of a mountain when Jesus was transfigured in divine glory. So they actually witnessed Jesus in his glory. So, you know, that lend some color to what they're asking for about sitting at the, on the right and the left of Jesus in his glory. They know what his glory looks like. And they're asking to share in his glory. And we might even give them a little measure of understanding because they considered themselves to be a part of Jesus' inner circle. But all of that understanding kind of goes out the door when you look at the very first question they ask. What's the first thing that they ask for? They said, teacher, grant us whatever we ask for. How many parents in here have ever heard that question from their children? Have you ever heard that question from your children? You interpreted that exactly correct. They are asking Jesus for a blank check is what they're asking for. But what's interesting is that Jesus, doesn't, um, Jesus doesn't say yes. And he doesn't say no. Like usually the, usually the answer to that is, well, I can't give you that, but tell me what you want. But Jesus just says, what do you want me to do for you? What's Jesus doing? He's doing the very same thing that he did with Barnabas. He is drawing out their desires that he might 
that he might attend to them. And so they ask him, grant us this honor uh, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. These are places of great honor that you would see in a place like a royal court. That's what, that's what they're asking for. And to understand, we have to understand what's going on in their heads. They've been with Jesus for a while. Jesus has now predicted three times. One of The last of those predictions came right before the story where Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die at the hands of powerful people. And the disciples heard this three times from Jesus, and not once did they seem to really believe that that's true. And so, and so they think they're going into Jerusalem. They've, they've, they've seen Jesus, and they, there's no question in their minds that he's got himself, that he's got himself. And, so, and to them, there's no one more powerful than Jesus. There's no way that could be true. And so to them, they're going to Jerusalem where Jesus would win a great victory. And they just want to, they are jockeying for position. They want to be very close to Jesus at the end of this road uh, and when things come out on top. And so their faith or their trust in him might be great, but they seem to be missing him entirely. That's what's betrayed by this question that they ask. Jesus is seeing his death at the end of this road, and these two are imagining sitting on thrones at the end of this road. And it's interesting to me that what they receive is, one, some well-deserved indignance at the hands of the rest of the disciples. Could you imagine being one of the other ten, and you hear that James and John are asking for this from Jesus on the side, right? Like, they, they, they became indignant. And so what happens is, Jesus says, I am seeing the same thing in these other disciples that I heard from James and John. They were just the ones that were bold enough to ask for it. And so he gathers them all together because they all need to hear this. And he gives them some teaching. Listen, some fundamental teaching about the nature of who Jesus is and the nature of the disciples, the kind of discipleship following that he calls us to. There are those that call Mark 10 verse 45, the key verse in the entire gospel of Mark. But how does he get there? He gets there by challenging the disciples' definition of what it means to be great. He says, the, the authorities you know, the ones you've observed, the ones that you have lived under, they exercise their authority by lording it over them. That just means they exercise their authority with a heavy hand. And it shall not be so among you. That is, not, that is not the kind of authority or power that you will yield in this world. To be great, you must be what? You must be a servant or a slave of all. And then he reinforces this call by describing who he is. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, That verse is worth memorizing. Um, That verse is worth meditating on for a while. First, he calls himself the son of man. That that phrase surfaces uh, first in the book of Daniel. Um, It... it, uh, it, 
it means several things, but um, it's used to describe the same person, the Messiah that God would send to redeem his people, but it also means that he's fully human. Uh, And he's not just fully human, but he's the human. He's this unique representation of man, uh, the true man, the representative of all men. Uh, And then, then he offers this phrase, the son of man who deserves all the greatness and honor we could offer him comes not to serve, but to be served. That refers to just the most common of service. Uh, and what does this service look like? I serve by giving my life as a ransom for many. The atoning sacrifice that he will offer on the cross in just a few days. One time Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what he's doing. He's loving by service. He's loving by doing things for people that that they could not do for themselves to to become justified in the eyes of God the Father. And so here's the argument that he's making for his disciples. Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, if the one who created both the supernova and the firefly and holds them together by the word of his power becomes our servant, then how can we do any less? That Jesus' service informs our understanding of our existence Uh, And this is what I find interesting that I want you to think about, because if you were to look, if you were to choose a few words to describe this request that the disciples come come to him with, uh, it probably wouldn't take you long before you landed on the word competitive. Like they were being competitive, weren't they? Now that's an instinct we understand, isn't it? Like they're competing with each other. They're competing with other disciples. They're trying to compete in order to be close to Jesus. And they're jockeying for power in some kind of relationship to Jesus. Like we, we can understand that instinct. But what Jesus is doing is calling them to a, to a different kind of competitive instinct of outserving each other. Uh, Jesus will, uh, or sorry, Paul will pick up on this teaching in Romans Chapter 12, where he'll say, show one another a brotherly affection and outdo each other with works of honor. That, that, like, he calls us to a different kind of competition where we learn to outserve our brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus, in the name of the one who served us. And not just any act of love, but a love that's deeply informed by his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And so this challenge that he gives to the disciples is one that you and I need to think and wrestle with for ourselves, don't we? Like, what does it mean? This is what, this is what think about it, okay? If you're, if you're a part of a family, kids, why don't you go home, have, let your parents nap, and then ask them. Like, what does this look like for me, right? If you're a part of a community group... Think about this question. If you're married, talk to your spouse. If you're not married, talk to good friends about this. Like, just ask this question. What does it look like to think of, uh, to think of our life as one lived out of a love deeply informed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on the cross? Think of your neighbors. Think of your friends. Better yet, think of your enemies. Think of those people that you're competing with. What does it look like to love them as Jesus has loved me? That's the question. That's the question to wrestle with. That's the thing to ask. What does it look like to love as one who is deeply loved? All right, let me close with this. Because to take on that call, or to take that call seriously for ourselves, 
is going to, is going to, we're going to need some help, right? Remember, Jesus is the one who gives lots of mercy, but even, even, even in the midst of our best effort to love, efforts to love uh, can fail, right? We, we need, um, we need help in this way. Now, one of the things that these two stories both have in common that I want to point out to you is the, is the boldness of the request that's being brought to Jesus, okay? You've got blind Bartimaeus, one who's being rebuked by a crowd, walking through a crowd that was jeering him and telling him to shut up in order to file a request before Jesus. That takes some moxie, right? That, that, was, uh, that was real boldness. And whatever we think about what James and John were asking Jesus, we can't fault them for not being bold, right? They were at least being bold. And so here's what I, here's what I want to ask you to do, is just pray bold prayers. Just pray bold prayers about this. Lord, I offer you my heart Shape me and call me in the direction. Help, give me the courage to follow you in this work of love that you're calling me to. Uh, I feel far away from you. Bold prayer. Would you please be near to me? I am failing in this way. Would you please give me help? Pray bold prayers. There's a story about John Calvin heard this from one of my old pastors. He's a 16th century theologian, um, and he had a seal. I want a seal, y'all. Like, I should have a seal, okay? It was like at the bottom or the top of all of his correspondence, he had this seal. And it evolved over time. Uh, It started out as this rudimentary, like, hand with a heart in it, you know? And, And over time, it became refined to two hands, open with a heart, and surrounding it were the words, my heart I offer you, O Lord, completely and sincerely. And and that's really what we're being called to do. That we we offer our heart to the Lord promptly and sincerely, asking the one who gives us all mercy and love to help us live with mercy and love. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O God of all mercy, uh, the Holy One, uh, the one who is um, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, Uh, the one whose mercy runs uh, as far as the east is from the west, Uh, the one who, uh, Lord Jesus, you are the one who covers our sin with your blood on the cross. I pray that you would help us to not only believe that your mercy is true and real and covers us, but that you would help us to live out of this sense of mercy and love that you call us to. Would you give us Would you give us that joy and draw out our desires and reshape them according according to your will? Would you help us in this and bless us in the taking of this meal as well as we think about these things? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.